You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 22. So Exodus, chapter 22, that's where we're going to continue our study of the book of Exodus today. If you need a Bible, go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll make sure that one of our ushers gets you a Bible so you can follow along with us. And if you read on your phone, you'd like to use the app on your phone, we encourage you to use the Version Bible app. And if you sign in and you go into the live events, you can find our notes and you'll see some stuff that's on the screen as well as some additional stuff that we don't put on the screen, but which is uh, just ways that you can interact and connect with the message as we're going as well. So in Exodus chapter 22, uh, you know, the book of Exodus is an epic story of salvation. It's an epic story of how God saved the people of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and he brought them to a relationship with him and brought them into true freedom. And so as we study this book, what we're considering here in Exodus is how God wants to do those exact things in our lives as well, to set us free, to save us, to bring us into true freedom through a relationship with him. So let's go ahead and pray. And then we'll get into our study. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that you are a good Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you are a sufficient Savior. Lord, that your blood was given as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And today, as we come to your word, Lord, we pray that we would understand it, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to understand these beautiful things written in your word. And not only that we would understand what they mean uh, at that time, but that we would understand what they mean for us and how they apply to our lives. So we ask that you'd speak into our lives and that you give us ears to hear and receptive hearts that receive your word and put it into practice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's just do a little exercise here. How many of you, just with a show of hands, how many of you have recently had one of your bulls gored by someone else's bull? There's uh, nobody. I was thinking maybe there's somebody from Weld County here today. And they're like, yeah, that did happen to me last week. But I guess not. So, okay, here's another one. How many of you have had one of your donkeys fall in a pit that somebody left open and then your donkey fell in and got injured? Anybody? Nobody. Okay, bummer. Uh, how many of you have had someone steal one of your sheep? That's, that's also a thing that happens. Uh, now, that's clearly none of you here today, but let me ask you this. How many of you have ever had your car stolen? Anybody? A couple of you, yeah. Uh, how many of you have ever had your house broken into? Uh, that's happened to us before. Uh, how many of you have ever lent someone something and they didn't give it back or when you got it back, it was damaged, like you didn't get it back in good condition? Let's, let's just uh, bring it all the way down to the base level. How many of you have ever been wronged by anybody at any time in your life, right? That would probably be all of us. That should be all of us. How many of you, on the other side of the coin, have ever done something wrong to somebody else? That should also probably be all of us. Today we come to a section which is all about this subject actually, which is about what to do when a wrong has been committed either by you against someone else or against you by somebody else. And because of that, this is an incredibly practical section. We usually begin with a scripture reading from the section we're going to study, but today I decided, you know what, we we just need to go through this because if I just read it to you, it's not going to make a lot of sense, but let's give some context to it. The title of today's message is, how wrongs are made right, how wrongs are made right, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Here in the book of Exodus, we are currently in a section where we are looking at the law of Moses. Now, what is the law of Moses? 
The law of Moses is a series of 613 laws which begin with the Ten Commandments which God gave to the people of Israel after he set them free from slavery in Egypt. So God set them free. You know the story. We've been studying it. He set them free. There were plagues. He led them through the Red Sea. And now he's brought them, he's led them to a mountain in the desert. And here at this mountain, he has invited them to enter into a relationship with him, a covenant relationship. The closest thing this can be compared to in our modern day that we're familiar with is marriage. This is a kind of relationship he's invited them into. It's a relationship predicated based on promises of faithfulness and love and and unending fidelity. God is promising he will be their God and they're promising that they will be his people and he will love them and bless them and provide for them. He will bring them into the promised land. He will give them a purpose and a calling on their lives to be part of his great work and his mission in the world to bring salvation to all nations of the world and they, they will obey him, they will love him and they will honor him as their God because of all that he has done for them and continues to do for them. So of these 613 laws, the first 10 of those, the 10 commandments, were the baseline moral standard. And we looked at those, we studied those two weeks ago. We also always encourage you, if you missed something or, or you want to get caught up, you can always go on our website or you can go download our podcast. And we have all kinds of instructions about how you can do that in the live notes and also on uh, our website. But these remaining 603 laws, we began looking at the first part of them last week. These were statutes which were meant to govern their society specifically at that time. God was founding a new society with these people, a nation who would be different than all other nations in the earth. This would be a nation of people who would know God and who would love God and who would be in relationship with God and they would live in a way that honored God and as a result, everybody would benefit. We talked about last week how these laws are the foundation for the concept of what we call human rights, that all people have been endowed with value by their creator and with certain inalienable rights that every life has value. Now there are a few basic reasons why the law was given. We'll go through these quickly and then we'll look at our section today. Why was the law given? A few basic reasons. Number one, it was given to be a blessing to the people. These laws, if they were followed, they were a blueprint for a truly just and truly compassionate society. The purpose of these laws was to shape the lives of the community, the lives of the people, in such a way that would be best for everyone. And that's important for us to remember. It's important for us to remember that every commandment God gives is about aligning us with who he made us to be, the way he designed us to be for our greatest joy, and it's because he loves us. Now, they weren't only given for our joy. There was, uh, there was more reasons why the law was given. Another reason they were given was to bring God glory, uh, specifically to show God's glory to the nations. You know, many of these laws, as we're looking through them, they don't apply to us directly. But there are principles that we can see in these laws which show us God's heart and the kinds of things that God cares about. And so these laws were given to create a nation, a society that would live in such a way that would be different the other people would look at them and realize that there's something different about them and they would realize that the difference in their life was because of their god in deuteronomy chapter 4 moses at the end of his life he's talking about these laws and he says this he says guys if you live in this way if you actually follow these laws people will notice you will be different and here's what he says people this is what people will say about you what great nation is there that has a God so near to them as the Lord God is to us whenever we call upon him. 
And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? So the idea was that as they lived differently, as they followed these laws, it would be different and people would notice. And as a result, God would be glorified and people would be drawn to God. And that too is an important thing for us to think about in our own lives. Is that true in my life? Is it true in your life? What does the way you live say about the God you confess to believe in? By observing your life and your attitudes uh, as well as your actions, would someone be drawn to your God or turned off from your God? The third reason that we have here as to why the law was given is this. The law was given, most importantly, to lead us to Jesus. See, even as this law was given, we read in the text, as the law was given, the people of Israel had a sobering realization and they even asked God to stop giving the law because they realized as it's coming down, they realized we've already broken this law. Like we, we've already failed at this. They looked around and they said, what are we going to do? Like we're not able to keep this law. The problem isn't with the law. The law is fine. The problem is with us. We've, we've already blown it. And the penalty for breaking this law is being cut off from God. And, and, and the penalty is judgment. And so what are we going to do? And, and that question is actually addressed here in both the section we're looking at today and in the next chapter, chapter 23. But here's the answer. The answer is when you've done wrong, there is a price that must be paid. There is a price that must be paid. And either you're going to have to pay it yourself or someone else could pay it for you if there were ever such a person who would be willing to do that kind of thing for you. So for them and for us as well, the law serves as empirical proof that we have fallen short of God's standards and that we are in need of a Savior to save us. And in this way, the law is meant to lead us to Jesus who came to be the Savior we need. Now this section of the law that we're looking at today is all about the practice of restitution, right? Restitution and what to do when a wrong has been committed. And the questions that we want to ask as we look at this text are, are two. The first question is this, how do these laws about restitution speak to us about how we are to respond when we've wronged other people and when other people have wronged us? So as the people of God, what do these laws say to us today? But secondly, the other question we ask is this, how do these laws point us to Jesus? Those are the two questions we're going to be looking at as we go through here. Now, there are three things that these laws teach us that we're going to go through in here. This is our outline for those of you who are into outlines. Three things about how wrongs are made right. First of all, just saying I'm sorry doesn't cut it. So just saying I'm sorry doesn't cut it. Uh, secondly, vengeance is his, not yours. And thirdly, we're going to talk about how God can be both merciful and just at the same time. Okay, so let's talk about this first one. Just saying sorry doesn't cut it. You know, one of the, what are some of the ways that when people have done something wrong, they try to, try to make it right? Well, one of the ways is by just saying, hey, I'm sorry. But here's what the law of Moses tells us, and this is a, just a fact of life. Just saying I'm sorry isn't enough, right? The, the only way to make, a right wrong, or to make a wrong right is through restitution. And restitution means making something complete or making something whole, restoring something that's been broken. So we're going to start in chapter 21, verse 33, and go through some of these things about restitution, then we'll talk about what they mean for us. So these were really, the thing you need to understand is these were case studies, right? So it says it was an ox, well it could have been a bull or it could have been a, a horse, right? These were case studies to guide the judges of Israel in administering justice in the community. So verse 33 of chapter 21, it says this, if you have an open pit 
on your land and you didn't cover it up and someone's animal falls into that pit and gets injured or dies, then you have to reimburse the owner for that animal. You have to replace the animal or pay them the price for the animal. And you have to take care of the, getting rid of the carcass of the dead animal or you have to now take the injured animal and take care of it yourself. In other words, you have to take responsibility. You have to make it right by restoring to the person what they lost because of your actions or because of your neglect. You go down to verse 35. It says, if an ox gets in a fight with another ox and kills it, then you have to get rid of that ox. And if you don't, and your ox actually has a habit, like habitually uh, getting aggressive and attacking other animals, then you're liable for that. The best parallel in our day is this. If you have a dog, for example, that has a habit of being aggressive and attacking people or other animals, and you don't do anything about it, you're held responsible for that. That's what we call criminal negligence. So in other words, we're not just responsible for the things that we do. We're also responsible for the things that we don't do when we knew that we should have done them. James puts it this way in his epistle. He says, if anyone then knows the good that they should do and doesn't do it for them, that is a sin. Okay, so let's go down to chapter 22, starting in verse 1. If someone steals an ox or a sheep and sells it or kills it, and then they get caught and everything happens, right? Here's what they have to do. Not only do they have to repay one ox for every ox that was stolen or one sheep for every sheep that was stolen, but five oxen for every ox that they stole and four sheep for every sheep that they stole. Now, you might ask, why do they have to pay back more? How is that fair? Uh, It's fair because having an ox or a sheep was not just an animal that you had. It was also a way of making money. So it was a, a source of revenue. You know, you don't just lose the animal when your ox gets stolen. You also lose the revenue that that animal could have potentially provided you. Kind of like if if somebody steals your car, not only did you lose your car, but now you can't get to work, right? Or let's say you're an Uber driver, that's your job, and someone steals your car, right? They didn't just take away your car, they took away your means of making money. And so to make it right, to make restitution, you had to pay back more than just the thing that was actually stolen, Let's go down to verse 2 and verse 3. It says, if a thief is breaking into uh, someone's house or someone's property at night and, you know, you come down the stairs or someone in your house and you strike them and they die, the person who struck the thief is not responsible for their death. Why? Because he's defending his, himself and his property and his family. But if the person whose house was broken into kills the thief after the sun has come up, basically in the daytime, then he is responsible for that death because at that point, it's not self-defense. It's revenge, and that's forbidden. And that's interesting because here we also have another concept introduced which we see in our modern legal system, and that's the concept that even criminals have rights. Now, it says a very interesting thing, which is is very different than our culture in verse 3. It says, If anyone steals, he must certainly make restitution. But if he has nothing, like he can't afford to pay the restitution, then he will be sold as an indentured servant and he will have to work off that debt, right? So if you couldn't afford to make restitution and you committed a crime, then you would be sold as an indentured laborer and you would work off your debt for a period of time until you could either pay back or you could make up what you had done wrong. So justice in this society was based on the principle of restitution and and what that means is that in this society, there were no prisons, right? It's very different than the approach that we have in our criminal justice system here in our society. Here in the United States, 
Uh, our way of dealing with criminals is we punish them and we try to rehabilitate them by locking them up in correctional facilities. Now currently, just some statistics for you, we are the most incarcerated society in the world, by the way, by far, here in the United States. There are 2.4 million people incarcerated in the United States. Now to give you some perspective, the United States makes up 5% of the world's population, but we are home to 22% of the world's incarcerated population, prison population. And, and it's actually just getting worse. Since 1980, the number of incarcerated people in the United States has quadrupled. And recidivism rates, meaning the, the rate at which people reoffend and you know, people who commit crimes go to jail and then they end up back in jail, recidivism rates are 66 to 70% on average, which means people who get arrested and they spend time in jail and they get out of jail, 66 to 70% chance that within a few years they're going to be back in jail. That's not, a, that's not a good percentage. So God's law took a different approach. Rather than locking people up, here's what God said. He said, here's how punishment and rehabilitation is going to happen in this society. You're going to have to pay for it. You're going to have to pay it back. You're going to be responsible for making right the thing that you did wrong and fixing that problem. And if you say, hey, I'm broke. I can't afford to pay for that. I can't afford it. Then uh, if you couldn't come up with the money somehow, then you would be sold as a servant and for a period of time, you would have to work off either to pay for the thing that you need to pay for or to make reparation for what you did wrong. So this was a very different approach to criminal justice. They didn't just focus on the person who committed the crime. They also focused on restoring the person who'd been uh, hurt by the crime. And so this principle of restitution, making things right when you've done something wrong. Let's go through some more of these. Uh, there's not many left. Verse 5, if you let your animals wander into somebody's field and the animal eats their crops, well, those are crops that they were going to use to feed their family or that they could sell at the market, and you're going to be responsible for that. I mean, you just killed their income or took away their family's food, and you can't just say, I'm sorry, that's not enough. You have to make restitution. You have to reimburse them for their loss. And it says that you have to do it, it's interestingly, it says you have to do it from the very best of what you have. So even if your animal didn't eat the very best of their crops, you have to give them the very best that you have to make up for their loss. Verse 6, if you start a fire and that fire gets out of control and it burns up somebody's crops or somebody's property, you have to make restitution. You have to make it right. You have to pay them back for their loss. Verse 7 down all the way to verse 14, if you lend someone something, let's say a lawnmower, right? Like I lend you my lawnmower and then while it's at your house, somebody steals it out of your garage then the person who borrowed the lawnmower needs to replace the lawnmower. They need to, you know, give you a new lawnmower or, or pay you for it. Verse 9, here's an interesting one. It says, if you accuse someone of wronging you and you take them to the judge or to the court and you try to get them to pay restitution, our day we call that a lawsuit. But then it turns out that they didn't actually do the thing that you accused them of doing, then here's what happens. You have to pay them double what you were suing them to give you, right? Don't you think that in our society, I mean, that's called frivolous lawsuits. So if you bring a frivolous lawsuit, the judge could look at that and say, no, and not only are you not getting anything out of this guy, but you have to pay him double what you were trying to get out of him, right? So you couldn't just go around accusing people of doing things without any proof because you're hurting their reputation and you're wasting the time of the court. Now, finally, in verse 16, another one that's also very different than our society it says this, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed, right, this is a single girl, and he lies with her, 
he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. And if the father utterly refuses to give him to her, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So notice in the society, who's held responsible in the case of, of premarital sexual relations? The man is held responsible. Now in our society, a lot of times it works just the opposite. If, if there's a relationship like this, a lot of times the woman, the woman is the one held responsible. And if she gets pregnant... A lot of times she's on her own. If she wants to take care of that, she wants to keep the baby, she's going to have to take care of that child and she may or may not get any help from the man at all. So this is a very different uh, approach to things. In this society, they were saying the man is going to be held responsible for his actions. Now think about how different our sexual standards would be in our society if men were held responsible. And if a guy slept with a girl, he had to marry her. And if he didn't marry her, he had to pay for a wedding anyway, right? Like write her a check right now. And if the girl said, girl's dad looked at this guy and said, no way, this guy's a deadbeat. I mean, this guy, I'm not letting my daughter marry this guy. He has no respect for her and, and he's not gonna treat her right. And he, maybe he's abusive or there's something else. And the dad says, you know, they might've slept together, but being married to this guy would be a greater curse on my daughter than what's already happened. So the, the, the dad could veto and say, no, you're not getting to marry my daughter, but the guy would still have to pay for the wedding. So the Bible doesn't teach uh, that men should treat women the same way that they treat men. You know, because the fact is men don't treat each other that great anyway, right? What the Bible teaches is that men should treat women better than they treat men. Our, our mothers and sisters and daughters are to be treasured and they're to be shown dignity and respect. And so these laws show us God's heart and his wisdom and his love, but but here's the thing, what does all this talk about restitution mean for us? So first of all, here's, what, here's one thing it means. It means that God is not only a God of love, he's also a God of justice. So God is not only a God of love, he's also a God of justice. You know, one of the Bible verses that most people are familiar with, I mean, many people who, they might not know much about the Bible, but they probably know this verse. It's 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, God is love. And that's a great verse, it's a, it's a wonderful truth. It's absolutely right. God is love. He's the very embodiment of everything that love is. But do you know what else the Bible says? It says that God is justice, right? So in, in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 8, God says, For I, the Lord, I love justice, and I hate robbery, and I hate wrongdoing. Right? So both of these things are true at the same time. God is love, but he is also a God of justice, God's justice is part of what makes him a good God. Without justice, he would not be truly good. And we're going to talk about that more as we get on to one of our later points. Here's another thing this means for us. When we sin, God doesn't just tell us to be sorry. God tells us to repent. So when we sin, God doesn't just tell us to say sorry. He tells us to repent. Now the word repent means, literally, it just means to turn around. And it, the picture that's being drawn here is that you are going in one direction, you're pursuing certain things, and you realize it's bad, and so you don't just feel sorry about it, but you actually turn around, you actually change directions and go in a different direction from that point forward. And, and many of you remember, I mean, how many of you remember being a kid, and you got caught doing something bad, and you told your parents, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm never going to do it again. But in your mind, you know, you're thinking, yeah, I'm definitely going to do that again right? Uh, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we read this in incredible promise. It says this, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's a great Bible verse. It's an amazing truth. But here's the thing. Some people have taken that verse and they've taken it and they've interpreted it to say something which it was never meant to say. They've taken it and they've looked at it and they said, okay, so all I got to do is just confess my sins and then I'm good with God, right? Like all I have to do is just admit that the thing I did was wrong and then I'm, I'm in the clear, like God has to forgive me. In other words, I don't actually have to change anything in my life. I don't actually have to change uh, what I'm doing. All I got to do is say, yeah, that was wrong and I feel super bad about it and then me and God are good again and then if I die, I can go to heaven, right? So I, I used to work with these college students in the first uh, church that I served in and there were a couple of them and they would come in on Sunday morning and they would look really upset, like really distraught and really, you know, upset. So I'd go and talk to them after church and I'd say, hey, you know, what's going on? They'd say, well, you know, I was out last night and, and I did some things that I shouldn't have done. And so this morning I just needed to come in and I needed to come before God and confess my sins and receive forgiveness. I'd say, great, you know, it's, it's good. It's good that you're here. It's good that you didn't that didn't drive you away from God, but you actually came to God because, you know, the church isn't meant to be a museum for saints. It's meant to be a hospital for sinners. I mean, you imagine a guy coming into the emergency room and he's bleeding and he's all covered in blood and the emergency room staff says, hey, hey, you can't come in here looking like that, you know? Why don't you go clean yourself up and then when, you know, you can, when you can come back when, you, when you're looking a little bit better. Now, that would never happen, of course, because that's the purpose of the emergency room. And the church should be the same way. You should be able to, it should be a hospital for sinners, where you, a place where you can come with the messiness of life and our fallen nature and, and bring it before God and receive mercy and the promise of hope in the gospel. You know, the, the gospel isn't a crutch for the weak. It's an entire hospital bed. I mean, it's an entire hospital ward, right? To heal and restore and revive those of us who have been wounded and broken by sin and all of its side effects. And yet, here's the thing. There were some of these guys, though, where you started to notice that it was actually a pattern, right? Like, after a while, it would be like every Sunday, the same story. Oh, man, you're looking upset again. Yeah, I was out last night. And, man, I've got a lot to confess today. And, you know, if you would have asked them, so, wow, you know, clearly you, you feel pretty bad about this, right? So are you going you gonna to stop doing this? Or, or are you just going to keep doing it? Oh, oh, yeah, definitely going to keep doing it. In fact, I've got big plans for this weekend. I am going to have a lot to confess next Sunday. Let me tell you, I'm going to feel super bad, right? So there was no repentance going on there at all, right? The thought was that according to this verse, right, that God, all God requires is that they just come and say sorry, and then they're good, right? They've checked that box, and they can go on their way and continue doing the same things. The Bible actually talks about that very thing. It says that a person who does that hasn't really embraced the gospel because there's no repentance in their life. There's no transformation. But if you look at the context of that verse also, you know, this is a classic example of how you can pick out a, a verse from its context and separate it from its context and then make it say something that it was never actually intended to say. Because here's the thing. If you look at 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 6, which is the beginning of that sentence that kind of idea that he's communicating he's actually talking about that very person who claims to be a follower of jesus but there's no repentance in their life there's no changing of directions there's no forsaking of wickedness and turning to jesus and it says those people are deceiving themselves but if we turn to jesus and we he, he will forgive our sins and he will cleanse us of all right all unrighteousness there will be real and lasting change in our life because of his work in us so Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, 
God doesn't just want you to feel bad. What God wants you to feel is what he calls godly sorrow. He says godly sorrow is sorrow that doesn't just stop with feeling bad. It's sorrow that leads to repentance, a changing of directions, a turning towards Jesus and pursuing him and his things. And the final thing that this means for us on this topic of restitution, which means that just saying sorry isn't enough in itself. Uh, Another thing it means for us practically is this. When we have done wrong against somebody else, we should do everything in our ability to make it right. So when you have done wrong, you should do everything in your ability to make it right. If you've hurt someone, if you've done wrong, you need to go and apologize and confess your sin to that person, admit that you were wrong, tell them you're sorry, ask for forgiveness, but don't stop there, right? Actually go the next step and say, I'm willing to do everything I can to make right what I did wrong. And we have a great example of this in a man named Zacchaeus. His story is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. You know, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which meant that he was a very wealthy man, uh, but everybody in the community hated him because he had gotten rich through coercion and extortion. He was ripping off his, his neighbors. And the people feared him because he had the backing of the Roman military, but even though they feared him, they despised him. So Zacchaeus was rich, but at what cost? He's, he's gotten rich at the cost of, you know, being all alone and having no one. He's rich, but he can't even look himself in the mirror in the morning. He probably hates himself. But here's what happened when Zacchaeus met Jesus. Something very incredible happened. Zacchaeus repented of what he had been doing, how he'd been ripping people off. But he didn't just stop at repenting. He went even further, and it says that he gave away half of all his wealth to charity, and everybody he ripped off, he went back to those people, and he paid them back four times what he had taken from them through extortion. And Jesus says of Zacchaeus there in Luke chapter 19, he says, truly salvation has come to this house today. You see, the proof that real change had taken place in Zacchaeus' heart was that Zacchaeus let go of that thing which had been master over his life, that had, had a controlling effect on his life, which was money. Because now he has a new master, his new master, God, and now he wants to serve this new master by making right the things that he had done wrong. You know, but someone might say, well, you know, on this topic of restitution, you know, what if someone says to me, don't worry about it. Like, I've forgiven you. You don't need to worry about making it up to me. I mean, then there isn't really a price to be paid, right? Well, in that case, there still is a price to be paid. But what's essentially happening is the person who forgives is saying, I will absorb that offense. I will absorb the cost of what you did. So, for example, if you come over to my house and you break something, And then you pull out your wallet and you want to pay me for it. And I say, hey, don't worry about it. What I'm essentially saying is, I will absorb that cost. I will pay that cost so that you don't have to. There's still a cost. That's the important thing to remember. But essentially, this is what God has done for us in Jesus. He forgave us our sins by absorbing the cost of our sins himself. So the reason why just saying I'm sorry doesn't cut it is because every action has a cost. Every wrong action has a cost. Now we're going to talk about that more in just a second, but let's talk about this. The second point here that we see in this section. Vengeance is his, meaning God's, not yours. So what, what do you do when someone has wronged you? One of the ways that people sometimes try to make a wrong right when it's happened against them is by getting revenge, right? Like paying somebody back for what they did to you. Now here's what this section tells us. Restitution is not the same thing as revenge, and vengeance is God's prerogative, not yours. So towards the end of chapter 22, 
Starting in verse 21, here's, God goes through a series of people. And he starts with the immigrant, the sojourner. Right? He says, if there's an immigrant or a sojourner amongst you and you mistreat that person, I will see that and I will judge you for that. Like, you're going to have to answer to me for that. In verse 22, he says the same goes for widows and the same goes for kids who don't have dads, fatherless children. You mess with them, then you're going to have to answer to me, is what God says. In verse 25, God addresses predatory lending, right? These are people who take advantage of the poor by giving them short-term loans at high interest rates. And God says, anyone who takes advantage of these, the weakest people in society, they're going to have to answer to me because I will make sure that these people, that justice is carried out on behalf of these people. And he says why in verse 27. He says, because I am compassionate. Because I care about the weak and the downtrodden in society. And here's what we're told in Romans chapter 12 on the topic of getting revenge. It says this, repay no one evil for evil. And then he goes down and he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. But here's what he says. He says, do not overcome, or do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us that Jesus is the perfect example of this. Because when Jesus was being reviled by others, he didn't revile back. He didn't seek revenge, but it says that he fully entrusted himself and his situation to God the Father who is the judge. So then the question again is, what does how does restitution come into this? Okay, I see that we're not supposed to seek revenge, but how does restitution come into this? Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. This is the section we looked at last week, but the verse really applies here very well. This is the very famous eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth verse. And what you need to understand about this verse is that it was not encouraging revenge. It wasn't requiring revenge. What it was doing was it was limiting Revenge. It was saying there should be an equal and appropriate punishment for the crime, right? The punishment should fit the crime. Remember, this was a culture and a time in the world that was lawless in many ways, right? There were warlords and kings, and if you had money, if you had power, it was kind of the Wild West. Like, you could do whatever you wanted, and you could bully people. And in those days, right, if you mess with me, well, then I'm going to mess with you double so that, you, that nobody will mess with me ever again. Right? It's kind of the survival of the fittest. So if you knocked out my teeth, one of my teeth, I'm going to come and I'm going to knock out all of your teeth. And so God comes in and he says, no, when I design a society, it's going to be different. Here's how it's going to be incredibly different. There will be rule of law and there will be justice and everyone will be equal before the law. And the punishment will fit the crime. The punishment will be equal to and appropriate to the crime. Now that isn't to say that we should never seek legal remedy. I mean, Paul the Apostle on two occasions sought a legal remedy. Jesus, even on one occasion, seeks a legal remedy. But there's a difference between seeking restitution, which is a legal remedy for a problem, and seeking revenge, trying to pay somebody back for what they've done. Here's what Paul tells us there. He says, don't be overcome by evil. Essentially what he's saying is, if you get obsessed with making sure that that person who wronged you gets paid back for what they've done, that they get what they deserve, so you will essentially, you will be, it will overcome you. It will devour you. It, it will ruin you. You will be overcome by that evil. But instead, he says, I want you to be free. Be free. Put it in God's hands. Let him worry about that person and what they deserve and all that. And rather than being overcome by evil, 
You seek to overcome evil with good. And here's our final point here that we learned from this section, kind of bringing it all together. The big question that we get out of this as we look at the Bible and how this fits in is this question. How can God be both just and merciful at the same time? How is that possible? See, here's, it's interesting. We're looking at the law, and what we're seeing here is that God cares very much about justice. And what we've seen here in this section is that every sin has a price, and somebody has to pay that price, right? So here's the deal. If God is just, and if God loves justice, then he can't just ignore sin. He can't just turn a blind eye to wrongdoing and pretend that it didn't happen. Every sin has a price. And just saying, I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it. The only way to make a wrong right is through restitution. And so the question is this. This is the dilemma. How can God be both just and merciful at the same time? I mean, aren't those things kind of in contradiction? Because think about some definitions here. If justice is giving someone what they deserve, but mercy is not giving someone what they deserve, then aren't justice and mercy at odds with each other? Right, so if justice is you get what you deserve and mercy is you're not gonna get what you deserve even though you deserve it, how can those things coexist at the same time? How can it be that God is both just and merciful at the same time? I mean, if he's merciful, doesn't that mean he's not being just? Now here in this section, what we've seen is that every wrong action, every sin has a price. But the question is this. Well, we've seen the prices of some of these, right? Like for ox and for sheep and all that. But what happens if we sin against God? What's the price for that? The Bible's actually very clear on what the price is for that. The price is death. And, and not just physical death. That's a part of it, but not the whole of it. Something even greater. Ezekiel chapter 18 says this. The soul that sins shall surely die. It's really hard to say. Well, the soul that sins shall surely die, right? And, and what that means is that's more than just a physical death. In Romans chapter 6, we're told that the wages of sin is death. But then we're told the good news, the amazing news, the great news, the astounding news, which is this. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the deal. Restitution is the only way to make a wrong right but Jesus is the restitution for our sins. That's the message of the gospel. Paul the Apostle explains how this works in Romans chapter 3. He says there in Romans chapter 3 verse 25, God presented Christ as an atoning sacrifice, atoning restitution through the shedding of his blood so that he could be, verse 26, both just and justifier, right? So there's both. So that God could be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So the question, how can God be both just and merciful at the same time? The answer is because of Jesus. Because God gave Jesus what we deserved so that he could show us mercy. And that gives us a new definition, right? So we've got justice is getting what you deserve. And mercy is not getting what you deserve and what grace is, this is what grace is. Grace is getting something that you could never deserve. And it's in this way that God says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, he says, I am a righteous God, and I am also a Savior. I'm a righteous God, and I'm a Savior. Because in Jesus, the judge of all the earth came to earth, and he took our judgment upon himself. That's how he saved us. And it's in this way that God can both be righteous judge and merciful Savior at the same time because of this act of grace. He took the judgment we deserved so that we could receive mercy. 
You see, this is what makes Christianity absolutely unique. See, every religion says, okay, here are the standards. If you live up to them, then great. If you don't, there will be judgment. But here's what the message of the gospel is. Here's why it's so absolutely radically different. The message of the gospel is the righteous judge of all the earth came down and he took the judgment that you deserved so that he could save you, so that he could show you mercy. I just want to encourage you today to look at this, to let it sink into your heart and your mind. Look at what God has done for you and embrace the gospel with your whole heart. I encourage you to give your life for him who gave his life for you. Consider the love of God for you shown in this amazing act of grace that he took the judgment so that you could have the mercy. And as you think about that, may the knowledge of that fill your heart with confidence and with joy and with hope in this coming week. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of the gospel. And as we consider these things about how much you care about justice and things being made right, Lord, we thank you that you are the one who has made us right in your eyes through Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful promise of the gospel. And I pray that as we consider it, as we go out from this place, it would fill us with so much confidence, confidence in how much you love us, how much you have done for us. It would fill us with so much hope for what awaits us because of what you've done for us. And that would fill us with joy that we've been accepted by you, that we've been redeemed, and that we have such a wonderful future that awaits us in you. So Lord, I pray that no one would leave here today without saying yes to you and stepping over that line. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.